0: Alan Johnson, your 20 questions start now. So you have been a secretary of state in five departments, trade, work and pensions, You've been home secretary, health secretary, education secretary. For me, almost the most impressive thing of all actually was that for a while you were minister of higher education and that despite having yourself left school at 15, you are also an author. So you do nonfiction, your famous memoirs, you have got a new novel out, you write fiction. You were a trade unionist. You're a postman. You're loads of other things. You're a dad, you're a husband. What for you are you proudest of in your career?
1: The books, I think, because the childhood memoir, this boy that started all that off, um, it kind of made my mother live again on the page. No one knew she ever lived. There's no memorial to her. There's no gravestone. Kensal Rise Cemetery, uh, my wife's, uh, my sorry, my sister's boyfriend paid for us to plant a little rose bush. My sister was only fifteen; I was only twelve, and uh, so we didn't really know about these things. But we didn't realise you had to resubscribe every five years; otherwise, they ripped it up, and that was it gone. So that was the only bit of her that existed. So to be able to write that, and it's very much the story of my mother and my sister. These two incredible women, who happened to be my mother and my sister. And then for it to do so well, to win the prizes, the Royal Society of Literature Prize, you know, Orwell Prize and all that, was just amazing. And it's something I kind of always wanted to do, that and being a, a rock and roll star. I mean, when the Beatles recorded Paperback Writer, I really did want to be a paperback a paperback writer and be Paul McCartney at the same time. So, So I think that's the one I'm proudest of. And that's probably the one that will last longest, you know, whether it's in a junk shop or whether it's in a you know secondhand bookshop or whatever or on people's library shelves it's sold a lot of books
0: you name check Kensal Rise Cemetery it's just up the road round the corner from where I live I'm born and bred in Notting Hill you would say you were born and bred in, in North Kensington where is home for you in your heart because I associate you with West London But you've also spent so much of your life in yorkshire you've lived elsewhere as well well where in is your spiritual
1: home do you think i suppose it's here it's wherever i am at the time and i lived up here as a member of parliament but going down to london every monday and coming back at the weekends when when that ended in 2017 you know i had a place in crystal palace i had a place here which one do i do i keep the london place on that was expensive that's you know that was uh, courtesy of the taxpayer they, they they paid the rent on that as an MP but anyway I love it up here I love Yorkshire something about Yorkshire people and something Larkinesque I mean Larkin came from Coventry up here and found uh, in his very acerbic way uh, he wouldn't have described it like this but found this this kind of um, lonely area larkin talked about its face always turning its back on the rest of the country and facing out towards towards the sea and it it feels like that out here so i I love it here and uh, i would i would describe this as home but you know there'll always be a bit inside of me that's that's london
0: i know you've spoken of the influence of one of your teachers at school i'm still curious given as i've already said that you left school at 15 how it has come to pass that you are not just a, a, an award-winning memoir writer, but also a successful novelist. Where does this come from in you? Where do you get the confidence? Where do you get the, not the literacy, but the, 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 the wide, you've, you've read so widely?
1: Two things, really. My mother, instinctively thinking books were good, although she had no experience of books, came from a family of 11 uh, in Liverpool uh, and had a very hard life. She dragged us to me and my sister to Labrador Grove Library, almost as soon as we could walk. So there was that lifelong love of books, but it was also the trade union movement. Trade union movement was crucial. I was there during its glam rock era, if you like, of the seventies, in my tank top and flares. And you know, you could take any course under the sun. They were called correspondence courses, which seems strange in this internet age. But I did them for fun because it cost you nothing. There was this cornucopia of educational opportunities provided by the trade union movement and they're doing it still. And the big untold story of social mobility in this country, it's the trade unions, whether it's miners' libraries or whether it's the Workers' Education Association. And I was a huge beneficiary of that. And then becoming a union official, a kind of shop steward level, we didn't call it that in the union of post office workers, but shop steward level and working my way up you had to be able to stand on your hind legs and deliver a speech you had to be able to to write because you had to send letters and do articles and all that and you had to be able to negotiate put those three skills together and it's a perfect apprenticeship for going into parliament, which i did eventually in my in my 40s
0: what was it actually like being a postman
1: it was brilliant absolutely brilliant but it was the end of an era so i joined The the civil service, the uniform civil, we were civil servants. We had to sign the Official Secrets Act Uh, up until the first year I was in the post office. I was a civil servant. Then it became a public corporation. But everything about the post office was roughly as it was when Roland Hill kind of created the modern post office in 1840. Penny Black and all that. Nothing was um, everything was mechanical. Nothing was electrical. You hump the bags about. You sorted the letters by hand. There were no postcodes. Um, and of course, that was going to change and technologi- te- technology was going to come in. But the, the thing I remember about it most, about the mid-70s, I was postman in London, then I transferred to Slough. And then I got what was called a rural delivery, which for people watching or listening to this in Devon or Cornwall, they're fall about laughing, thinking that anywhere in Buckinghamshire could be rural. But there is. I was on a delivery called Littleworth Common, Hundred and twenty drops. You know, farms. Uh, there was a, there were farm labourers in Chalkpit Lane. There was a uh, air vice marshal uh, up at Huntsmore Cottage. It was an incredible life because you delivered the newspapers you know, on behalf of the newsagent because they couldn't get news paper boys to go out there or paper girls. So you delivered the newspapers. You took bags of coal out to elderly uh, customers who couldn't get into Burnham to get to get their coal from, from FW Clears in Burnham High Street. I used to take it out to them. And eggs from the farm, Hicknaham Farm, taken around um, to other people around the area. But here's the best bit. Eight o'clock every morning, I'd get to Mr. and Mrs. Rayner's place, which was Hicknaham Farm. And they were right; they were real Tory country landed gentry. I'd walk into their lovely kitchen. Yaga was on. Terry Wogan was up on an ancient radio Doing um, whatever Terry Wogan was doing. It. Fighting the Flab was Terry Wogan's big thing. This is the 70s. And they're prepared for me uh, amongst the dogs, the, the their sons who were working on the farm, getting up, sitting down in their pajamas to eat their breakfast. They're waiting for me was a thick slab of homemade bread, uh, thickly spread with butter, and a big cup of all milk coffee. Every single morning at and farm, Mrs. Raynor made me that. And we talked politics and we'd shout and scream at each other about this was the 70s not shout and scream but it taught me kind of political argument with someone who's on a different comes from a different political angle and I was you were part of that community postal workers were part of that community still are by the way crucially uh, so in rural areas but so that's that's my happiest memory
0: so you were kind of, you guys were the sort of oil that kept the wheels turning in this country. You were crucial to the economy. You were crucial to people's personal lives, to people's daily lives. This was before the internet and, and mobile phones. So, so you had a really, really important role. And I'm just, I'm interested to know now, given the struggles that Royal Mail are experiencing with the industrial action, what you feel the, the future is for, for letter writing for the industry that you were at, at the heart of, and, and perhaps specifically for the Royal Mail itself?
1: Well, letter writing had already declined. i remembers about 10% of all the letters that went were handwritten. It was business stuff, it was bills, it was circulars and all of that. Cards, very important, birthday cards, Christmas cards. But letter writing had kind of gone, I suppose the phone was a big um, killer of that. Um, but nevertheless, you know, even now, I mean, I, when I was postman, I delivered loads of letters and a few parcels. Now they deliver loads of parcels and a few letters because the Internet, you'll never be able to send a parcel of the Internet. And indeed, the most common message on the Internet is send me something through the post, send me a book, send me a catalogue, you know. So it's a huge opportunity. Um, I mean, I'm going to make this point, but I'd be making it, you know, irrespective of my political allegiance. The post office is one of those industries, like the railways, that should be in the public sector. It should be publicly owned because you can make a lot of money off of it um, if you want to cut the services back. A man in a van can go in and you know make a fortune delivering between Birmingham and Coventry or whatever. The post office has this universal service obligation, which is a very noble thing to deliver anywhere in the country, all 27 30 million addresses, I think there is now, no matter how remote, in Highlands and Glens and Riversides, they will be there once a day, six six days a week, and it will cost you the same as posting a letter up the road. That universal service obligation was what Roland Hill introduced, still crucial, being torn to bits now because it's in the private sector, it's split away from the post office counters, they've had their own problems prosecuting their own postmasters, um, and the whole thing, as, as we predicted at the time, has become less of a important detail in the social fabric of this country. That's what the post office is and was. And that's what it can be, again, irrespective of the Internet, because you do need those characters going around and keeping people in touch with society, tackling loneliness, knocking on doors for people who, you know, suffering one of the biggest mental health problems we've got uh, in this modern age, which is loneliness. So I, it's a shame, and I just hope they win their current battle because I think there's a set of managers who are in there at the moment, determined to reduce the post office to to the kind of gig economy that some of these other companies work in.
0: And, and they would and do, I think, say say differently. But why did you think that party politics was for you, Alan?
1: I didn't really, um, in the sense that you know, I didn't come from an upbringing that kind of pushed me towards one party or the other. I mean, no doubt there are people who take PPE at university and then decide which kind of party they're going to go in. They want to go into politics. They're not sure which party yet. And they look to see, most of them do it out of conviction. Of course they do. But some, no doubt, do it, you know, let's see which party is more likely to get me a ministerial uh, post. So not every that was all kind of miles away from me. I kind of, I fell into it, partly reading George Orwell, Mr Carlin, my English teacher getting us into Animal Farm when I was 14, then reading everything Orwell wrote practically in the 10 years after that. He made me a democratic socialist. I kind of looked at the the fringes, you know, the the idea of a worker's state appealed to me. I actually understood, Matt, the theory of surplus value. I read Das Kapital, unlike Harold Wilson, who couldn't get past page four. I read it and it kind of excited me, but there was always Orwell and Mr. Carlin calling me back about the dangers of a system that needed the secret police to keep it in place. You know, that fundamentally undemocratic road, road that leads to totalitarianism. So in the end, when I was 24, I, I joined I joined the Labour Party and a great hero of mine in the trade union movement, Jimmy Reid, who led the, you won't remember, him, but led the great Glasgow, work in. He didn't take people out on strike. He said, They're trying to shut our shipyard. You know. We stay here and we keep working. And it was a huge success. He left the Communist Party of Great Britain and joined the Labour Party about the same time I did. I doubt if my move influenced him, but his certainly influenced mine.
0: Interesting. You mentioned George Orwell because he wrote that style guide, didn't he? And I think very important part of that was stripping out fluff, stripping out excess language from writing. Have you been conscious of the way that you write as you've embarked on your literary career? Are are you sort of self-aware? Because I I would say you'd probably Mm. describe your
1: style as pretty direct. Yeah. Um, Well, I suppose I did learn some of that from Orwell. I was writing short stories at the time, as Mr Carlin was trying to get me well he did get me to send them off and get the inevitable rejection slips but um this idea of Orwell's that you know your writing is as clear as a pane of glass and you don't need the reader doesn't need to kind of struggle with it to understand what you're trying to say your prose says it all but god if I was if anyone ever compared me to Orwell I mean I just dropped it on the spot So I'm not trying to win the Pulitzer Prize or the Nobel Prize for for literature. I'm trying to write in a way that readers will enjoy. And that means I have to put the effort in and go over it and over it and make sure I take out anything superfluous so that the story doesn't get drowned out in the prose.
0: Much in the same way, differently, of course, but there are are some similarities that the the post-men and women were at the heart of society, connecting everyone together. In a way, literary festivals, literary events, on-stage events, the sorts that we've done together many times or several times, they're really part of the the cultural lifeblood of this country, aren't they? They connect us. They bring us together under a literary roof. And, And I get the sense from interviewing you on stage that you absolutely love it and you've thrown yourself into that world. So it's not just that you love the writing, but yeah. you also love engaging, engaging with audiences, selling your wares, but not just as a, 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 a literary entrepreneur, but as someone who really wants to communicate.
1: Well, I mean, they crept up on us, didn't they? These literary festivals. No doubtless they've been going for a while, the big ones in particular, Edinburgh, Hay, uh, Cheltenham. But now every town seems to have one. My wife reckons I only write books so I can go to to book festivals. And there's part of that that's true because it's everything you know i'm i'm a kind of show-off otherwise i'd have never got into politics you know and i always wanted to be a rock star this is the closest i ever get to touring the country you know as a uh, as a rock star people come to see me and talk about my books for christ's sake they then not come to like a political meeting come about which had disappeared anyway don't come talk about your program for government or your manifesto talk about you and the books you've written and and they're usually your fans so you know what's not to like about it if you can get 20 people on a wet night in in uh, in uh, i don't know grimsby great if you can get 2000 people on a tent on sunday morning in cheltenham even better but i think the vibes the same they're interested enough to come and hear you speak about your books
0: It's tricky talking to you sometimes without the word music cropping up. So I want to ask you my ninth question on the subject of music and specifically the Beatles. Do you love the Beatles as much as you always have done? And tell us in your own words why you think they're so special.
1: I love them more. Uh, You know, the more you see the kind of the way other generations have become enamored to them. I mean, I I lived it in real time unlike you, who's that much younger. You know, I was there listening when British pop music was epitomised by Mandy Miller's Nelly the Elephant. You know, when when Pinky and Perky had records in the top 10 in this country, I mean, for God's sake. And when the only decent music you could ever hear was Transatlantic, you know, our rock stars, and I'm going to offend people here, but I think it's true. Uh, they were Elvis Presley impersonation acts, whether it's Cliff Richard or Marty Wilde or, or, um, uh, or Billy Fury. You know, they looked and sounded like Elvis. That's what they wanted to do. And then came this incredible wave of musicality from the Mersey that just blew people away. Why do I love them as much now? Their music just, I don't play anything from that era anymore i used to love the small faces i followed the yardbirds around the who were a great inspiration to me but i listened to it and it sounds dated you listen to the beatles still now and then and you shouldn't have got me started on this because i'll use all the time available but then the way they went from simple stuff like thank you girl that was one of their b-sides early on uh To really complex stuff like Eleanor Rigby, Strawberry Fields Forever, She's Leaving Home. That was in four or five years. Four, I think. You know, an incredible evolution in music that took the world with them. The world struggling to catch up. And I've made this point before. You know, people talk about an equivalence between the Stones and the Beatles. I loved the Stones. I used to go and watch the Stones. I couldn't watch the Beatles. I was in London. I saw the Stones. At uh, Il Pai Island, I sold the Stones at uh, Wimbledon Palais, for God's sake, twice. Um, very exciting. Equivalence between the Stones and the Beatles? No, 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 no. The Beatles changed the world. The Stones couldn't even change their chord formation. They followed in the wake of the masters. And I think Jagger and Richards would say that themselves. There is no equivalence. Nothing can touch the Beatles and nothing will ever touch them in the future. Talking about change,
0: did being a, a frontline politician, a front-bench politician, change you in any way? How did you manage to retain the Alan Johnson-ness of, of being Alan Johnson while you were fronting up for a government, while you were part of the machinery that was running the country?
1: It probably did change me. You'd have to ask others uh, uh, whether it changed me or not. All I know is, you know, as I said before, the trade union background. You know, if you want a difficult gig, go and talk to 2000 striking Liverpool postal workers and tell them they've got to go back to work because you just got a deal, uh, which they probably won't be happy with. You know, this these these are fundamental things within the trade union movement. <coughs> Constantly arguing with people from the left as well in terms of, you know, reestablishing your your views as a democratic socialist. Um, and so I never felt phased by that coming in after being the general secretary of a major trade union. And secondly, you know, I never stopped reading books. I never stopped listening to music. And I know some ministers who who get the job and it's overwhelming and it can be, particularly a job like Home Secretary. But I kind of disciplined myself. And finally, I had really good special advisers around me. The special advisers are your friends the only ones you appoint civil service was great by the way but you didn't appoint them. you've got this group special advisors three or four go out and do your bidding tell you what's happening and mine were experts at working with the civil service and were friends of mine then and are very good friends of mine still so that helps to insulate you i think not sure whether our current prime minister has those people around her if she has they ought to be looking for new jobs I think at the moment Matt I remember
0: vividly interviewing you I'm, I'm pretty sure it was early summer 2015 shortly after David Cameron won that unexpected majority and beat Ed Miliband or the conservatives under Cameron beat Labour under Ed Miliband and we were on stage in Salisbury I think we had to do two gigs because you'd sold it out a couple of times and I just introduced you by saying I think perhaps the result might have been a little different had Alan Johnson been the leader of the Labour Party. And there was spontaneous applause and I think warmth towards you as well. Why didn't you run to be Labour leader? I know you ran to be deputy leader. Why didn't you run to be Labour leader? And is there any part of you that regrets not having become prime
1: minister? Uh, I didn't run because there was always someone better than me. The idea that I could have done a better job than Gordon Brown. Mm -hmm was ridiculous I was very much part of David Miliband's campaign to take over from Gordon Brown it went to it went to Ed uh, in a kind of Shakespearean tragedy uh, and after that I had absolutely no interest at all I never really wanted to be the leader of the party I saw what it did to people what what it did to their families and and uh, and what it did for the rest of their lives actually I mean you know you can't I can't go and have a chat with Tony Blair or a beer with him or or Gordon. They're they're protected and they have to be protected for the rest of their lives. So no regrets at all. None whatsoever. I mean, I've never had this new world of looking out onto the Yorkshire fields there and writing these thrillers. Uh, I don't think if if I'd have been prime minister.
0: Politics can, as we know, get really, really bitter, can't it? vitriolic at times there's a lot of hatred around you talk to some people and they really seem to hate the Tories and perhaps social media amplifies that and I wonder I know you're not a Twitter man yourself but I wonder what whether you think broadly speaking social media has been a force for the good or the bad in the way that we engage with politics
1: bad unquestionably bad because people can do things anonymously we used to call them The people with green ink, when you got a letter from someone who was obviously, you know, needed some help. Now the green ink brigade are everywhere and they're not people with mental health problems. They're people who are bitter, nasty, twisted, who, you know, have always been amongst us. (laughs) The idea that humanity is all perfect uh, is for the birds. So these people have always been amongst us. Now they've got this ability to get their nastiness and their viciousness off their chest you either you know you either do it through the daily mail and run a newspaper like that or you do it on the internet it's it's vile whichever side it comes from
0: what about you personally do you have friends who are tories do you have have you made friends from across the floor when you were an MP are you are you happy to disagree very strongly as you did with that that lady that who, whose post you delivered all those years ago are you happy to deliver are you happy to to disagree very strongly but t- to find common ground and to find humanity in people who do disagree with you and, and actually end
1: up friends that's the basis of our of our system you know George Or is better than War. you know you channel all those through debate and discussion I wouldn't know if lots of my friends with I don't ask them how they vote before I become friends with them. The idea, you know, this never kiss a Tory nonsense that came up with one of Corbyn's uh, acolytes. I mean, what a terrible way to to treat humanity. It's not far removed from, I want to know what their religion is before I become friends with them. I want to know what, you know, the colour their skin is. I want to know, you know, what why is it any different to hate people because of their political allegiance than to hate them because of religion and you know, ethnicity and uh, sexual orientation. I think it's uh, it's absolute nonsense. I wasn't friends with many people in Parliament, uh, you know, on my side, never mind their side. It wasn't the kind of, it wasn't the kind of pally place uh, for me, but I'd count people like David Davis, uh, Michael Portillo, who I kind of met on the television rather than when he was in Parliament, um, as as friends. And I certainly, certainly wouldn't, wouldn't know whether many of the friends I'm making now in my new world, my publishers, the people who work at Steps Pack Lunch, which I'm on the telly twice a week, which I don't know what politics they're from. I don't ask, but it doesn't, you know, doesn't it? Doesn't uh, influence my friendships one way or the other. We're speaking just
0: a handful of days, or even fewer, after Liz Truss ditched her chancellor, quasi Kwadengo. The Conservative Party, I think almost the consensus would be now, is in a terrible mess. Just how much damage do you think they are doing to the country? And given that this trust has had to reverse such a great tranche of her flagship economic policy, do you think the, the reasonable thing to do, do you think the right thing to do, is for there to be a general election so that we can have our say? Because after all, she was not Prime Minister, when we last went to
1: the polls. I think it's the right thing to do. It's the reasonable thing to do, but it won't happen because our, you know, our democracy doesn't allow. It. We're a parliamentary democracy. I, I agree with that bit, by the way, being a parliamentary rather than a presidential system. I don't agree with the voting system. I think we should have PR. I don't agree with the Prime Minister's right to call a snap election. We ought to have fixed-term parliaments, as we did uh, under Cameron, and it was repealed under Johnson. Um, You know, their problem uh, is 12 years in government, pretending that they've been different governments, that Johnson was a different government from Cameron. You know, Cameron, Theresa May came in, my successor, as home secretary, cut police numbers by 20 percent, a fifth of all officers. PCSOs disappeared in some places. Now we've got the highest crime rates for 14 years. Johnson comes in and says he's going to recruit police officers and the public's supposed to forget who cut them in the first place. So, you know, we were in power for 13 years. If someone asked me at the end of 13 years, what did you achieve? I could point to national minimum wage, peace in Northern Ireland. I could point to the rebuilding of our schools. I could point to waiting times coming down from 18 months to eight weeks uh, in terms of uh, uh, of operations. And I could take the whole swathe of things uh, that, that we did in this country. What have they got? for this 12 years. I mean, what? What? I suppose someone would say, uh, you know, gay marriage is the only kind of step forward that has affected one person. It's been austerity, then it's been chaos over Europe, then it's been rabid kind of infighting, uh, it's awful. And their problem, if you sum it up in one word, is Europe. The Tories cannot accept the world in which they are neither, you know, head of empire or head of anything where they are contributing, generally contributing. This is a big change. The Tory party of the 70s, when I first became politically involved, had literally hundreds of thousands of supporters of the European Union. And that all disappeared by the 90s. And in the last, now you can't find, I mean, all the ones that were there, Dominic Grieve, etc., got sacked by, by Boris Johnson. And it's this fundamental problem of working with others internationally that has caused them so much trouble it's even the answer to their growth problem you know growth growth uh, has dropped by four percentage points according to the OBR and the Institute of Fiscal Studies because we're no longer part of the biggest commercial market in the world which is the European single market what do you make of Keir Starmer Sir Keir Starmer I like him yeah I like him Uh, and I liked him when he was director of public prosecutions he's a guy who's done a proper job you know, as equal to any government, uh, any cabinet uh, minister's role uh, as, as DPP. Uh, he's honest, he's uh, hardworking, he's ethical. Uh, he's all the things you want from your prime minister and have been lacking from some recent prime ministers we could name. He's also a lot of fun and a great musician. You know, he was an exhibitionist at the London Guildhall, that means you go in every Saturday and do an exhibition for other musicians, both as a flutist, as a clarinetist, and as and also as a pianist. I mean, he is a guy who gigged with um, uh, with the guy to whom I think, Norman Norman Cook, Fatboy Slim, Fatboy Slim, uh, Keir Starmer, like that. Tell Tell me, tell me
0: this. I'm interested to know whether you think Labour is doing enough to advance its own reason for being, its own reason for ruling. Clearly, the Tories are having a disaster. Do Labour need to do more or do they need simply to avoid calamity? You remember your old boss, Tony Blair, he talked of the big idea. Has Labour under Keir Starmer got a big idea? And if it
1: hasn't, does it need one? Well, I would say... the polls i read this morning was 36 points ahead and of course that's the government in turmoil but that's always the case elections are always governments to lose so i wouldn't go out of his way to kind of piece together something because he thinks he's should be on the defensive no i think people see him as an alternative to this um rascal we had in before and this complete lack of competence we've got now you know they see him as competent probably is the word that you need to describe Kia, and a competent front bench and a good guy and a sawar in in scotland and a good leader in wales and good women coming through like rachel reeves you know yvette cooper is still there um lisa nandy a good team around him and i think you know what they're expounding is is basic social democracy or democratic socialism whichever way round you want to put it and his idea on the environment which will be the big feature, I think, uh, as well as the economy of the next election, I think of seized people's imaginations. Many would say,
0: and the science would back this up, it seems, that the biggest challenge facing all of us, whatever party allegiances we have, whatever country we have to live in, is the climate catastrophe around the corner. Some would say it's happening already. How do we confront that successfully?
1: Oh Christ! This is one to slip in your twenty questions, is it? <laughs> uh, uh, well, the the good news is there is a consensus now on that. For the last ten years, up to a couple of years ago, I suppose, you know, you still had the Nigel Lawson's, you still had the President Bush, you know, was a climate change denier. You still had um, Boris Johnson was arguing. Twenty, uh, I mean, two hundred Tory MP, no, sorry, a hundred Conservative MPs wrote to the Times back in 2015, complaining about wind farms and complaining about turbines and green energy. A hundred. I know about this because we were trying to attract Siemens to come to, Hull. Oh, we did it successfully in the end, but the Siemens managing director went berserk when he saw this. A hundred members of the governing party saying we don't want wind power, you know? So that's all gone now. Uh, at least I trust it's gone. most it might still well, be- Boris, few- Boris Johnson would say that he,
0: took the, the environment seriously.
1: In the end, he, his original thing was that wind power couldn't take the skin off a rice pudding. That was his, you know, that was that was Boris Johnson's view. Um. So now the good news is there is a real consensus about this. And, you know, we're buying between, you know, carbon zero by 2035 or 2030. Keir Starmer announced 2030. You need a government that's going to do it and has got the competence to do it. But you know, I think you know the the year zero is, is is coming in more ways than one. As Orwell, I wish Orwell was around to comment on this because he'd have recognised this as you know the ultimate uh, uh, self interest to tackle this issue.
0: Carbon footprints aside, or maybe you take carbon footprints into account. What is the ideal Johnson, Alan Johnson, not Boris Johnson? Holiday. Why and what?
1: Oh, Crete. Crete somewhere. Why? Because it's gorgeous. The people are lovely. The food's great. Crete, because if you do get lost in the White Mountains, and my latest thriller, one of our ministers is missing, as you know, Matt, concerns a foreign office minister who goes missing in the White Mountains. If you do, it's practically the only country you can think of where you don't have to worry about. Wild animals. There's no bears that are going to come and kill you. There are no venomous snakes going to pop out and kill you. There are, are no. Are you sure? Absolutely sure. Absolutely sure. I've done a trawl of the whole of uh, Crete, uh, <laughs> and there are no poisonous, no poisonous spiders. Are you uh, sure? This is this is a fact. Absolute fact. <laughs> so, so you're fine. And I will tell you something else. You don't hardly ever see a wasp over there as well. I don't know whether they they kind of camp out on a neighbouring island, but you don't. But so I think Crete's the perfect
0: venue two more questions you've talked religion or you've brought religion into it it woven that? into our conversation very briefly right. are you a religious man what's the point of life what happens after death I'm cheating I'm wrapping three questions into one
1: uh, no I'm not a religious man the point of life is to live it and be the best you can as a human being uh, is there anything afterwards no nothing whatsoever and, and, eventually, oh, wow. and eventually the planet's going to go as well. You know, It's only a matter of time before some huge bloody asteroid comes and destroys us, as it's destroyed all previous uh, signs of life that ever existed. So, so enjoy it while you can.
0: I really want to ask you a follow-up question, whether it bothers you that nothing happens after death, but I've got another question to ask. <laughs> and this is my final question.
1: Ask me after I've died whether it bothers <laughs> me. We'll do another interview and you get a lot of
0: accolades for that (laughs) this is your 20th and final question so we know that you love music we know that you tried to become a musician we know that you enjoy and are very good at writing we know that you enjoy debate we know know all this about you know your passion for politics and so forth what special skills or passions or hobbies go on in Alan Johnson's life that perhaps we don't know about And, and are any of them involved in your perfect evening
1: uh yes music uh writers you said you tried to become a musician uh, just uh, correct that. i made a record when i was 16 uh with the band called the area uh, you can still get it on youtube my strong advice is not to i was a great songwriter i've quoted this to you before matt my song about a lad with acne and eczema uh called bad skin that i wrote when i was 18. and the middle eight says how can any girl want to be with you when every kiss she gets just tastes of Nivea. That, it, my friend, is brilliance. And I sent that song off to Elvis Costello 30 years ago, and he's never replied. Um, so, yes, that that's my uh, other skill. And would it figure in my, my my most wonderful evening? It would be with my wife. There'd be food. There'd be wine. There'd be good m- music. Uh, and I think that's all you need, perhaps a book to read later in the evening to stop you getting overexcited.
0: Just have to ask, this is not council's a question, but just to clarify something, when you talked about President Bush and his relationship with the environment, were you talking about father or son?
1: I was talking about father principally, but a bit of that rode into son as well.
0: Alan Johnson it has been an absolute delight, as it always is. It's been a particular delight to, to ask you 20 questions and to get 20 answers from you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure.